Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 113. It's early 1835 and globally quite a few fascinating things are going on. For one, America's national debt was at zero dollars for the first and last time in its history. Its president, Andrew Jackson, had survived an assassination attempt in January of that year. Also a first, but not a last. Mauritius had banned slavery on the 1st of February, 1835, as South Africa had done in December, 1834. The British had begun their counterattacks on the closet chiefs who had invaded across the ceded territories into the Cape and wreaked so much havoc. The Sixth Frontier War was rumbling on. Another major event had been brewing for some time. The Trek Boers had been chafing under the rule of the English, and each new law that was supposed to protect the Khoi Khoi from abuse and the ban on slavery led the Dutch descendants to recoil, seeing these as actions designed to destroy their way of life. It was a litany of abuse, as far as the Boers were concerned, including the horror of Slachtersneck rebellion, the bungled hang of the rebels, the use of English as the official language, and they were under siege. It was all too much. These were the push factors. But there were pull factors. Those distant landscapes, those far-off mountains that seemed to beckon to the youngsters and people with adventure in mind. These beckoned towards adventurers like an African Medusa. The fact that the land was occupied was of secondary importance, and like Medusa, was imbued with malice and risk. Karl Trichardt met with Hinsa between the Kai and Banshee rivers and asked him for land and was awarded a 90-year lease on 101 square kilometres near the Kai River. This was not what the British had intended with their segregation of the colony and the closer areas across the Kai. Trichardt in particular was going to be a thorn in the English side. By now, other leaders of what became known as the Great Trek were starting to emerge. Pieter Tiff, for example, was a provisional field cornet in the Cape. He was quite happy to be paid to officiate on behalf of the British Empire, at least at this stage. For example, he reported to authorities he had discovered 15 settlers and 143 Kosa living together in a nearby forest, utterly destitute. Retief was plagued by mounting debt, which is one of the reasons that he swallowed his pride and worked for the Brits, and was also beginning to have serious doubts about the quality of leadership on the frontier. He asked Albany, Somerset Civil Commissioner Duncan Campbell, to appoint Louis Trichardt as the senior field cornet, but Campbell ignored his suggestion. This angered the Boers, as Trichardt was seen as a man of the felt, no one more knowledgeable. In October 1832, Retief sent Campbell a letter after the English official had rejected a burger request to hold a protest meeting to talk about what was happening on the frontier. This was two years before the Sixth Frontier War we have been following. Then the burghers received news in 1833 that the King of England had signed the Slavery Abolition Act, and part of this new law stipulated that all slaves would be set free after six years of apprenticeship training by their former masters. By that year, Trichard was living alongside the families of the Delangers, Ludovic Boerte, Jacobus Haman, and Jacobus and Rainier Grubler, beyond the official borders of the Cape. They were busy selling arms and ammunition to the Tosa, which would be used in the upcoming war against the British, and the Boers doing so were called fugitives by the British officials. Trichard and the others were doing more than just selling arms. 
They were also encouraging that Clauser to resist the British. Louis Trichard was soon named as a criminal for these activities. The government accused him of several misdemeanors, including cattle theft, and slapped a reward of 500 head of cattle on his head. By now, Pete Retief, who was not operating as a rebel, asked Campbell to allow him to hunt beyond the Orange River with two members of the Hreling family. But Campbell thought they were scouting for a possible emigration gap from the colony and denied their request. The Hrelings were also well known by officials and had undertaken journeys without permission. In 1834, the number of Boers leaving the colony accelerated even before the promulgation in December of the unbanning of slavery formally in the Cape Colony itself. The Trek Boers knew this was coming and wanted to take their Khoikhoi and other slaves and leave the territory. Every meeting of Boer families was dominated by the talk of moving inland to escape the accursed English and their emancipation. Which way to go? East, towards the legendary Zulu king Dingan, or through the lands of the Griqua and the Bastards, and towards Mzilikazi? Most had not made up their minds at all about leaving, including two of the most well-known future leaders of this trek. First was Andres Hendrik Potkita from the Tarka district, an area of the small Karoo based on a plain near the Winterbach mountain range north of Algoa Bay. Many battles had been fought here over a century as the first farmers clashed with the San, who were the first people of this region. The second was Pietras Lafras Ais, who was a farmer in the headwaters of the Kroma River that flows into the Indian Ocean on the north side of the modern town of St. Francis Bay. Pietras Ais, better known as Piet, approached the British authorities again for permission to travel into the interior to hunt. His real motivation was to scout for land. This time he was granted permission and also allowed to trade with the Tosa and other people he came across. It's important to understand what was going on in southern Africa right now. It was a time of the British Empire imposing itself on both the Boers and the Amatosa. However, it was before the British had formally annexed Port Natal. Keep this in mind because you're going to hear that the Tosa were going to protect some Trek Boers initially. Hinsa, in particular, understood that they were the enemies of the British, like he was, and he was very interested in using them as shields and buffers himself. Mzilikazi would come to the same conclusion in a short while, at least initially, before he realized that the Boers were after his land along the Upper Val and Mariko rivers. It was Mzilikazi's experience at the hands of the Boers that was going to have deadly consequences for some of the Trek Boers. This was some time off. So let's take a journey into the strange period where the Zulu and the Amakosa did not refer to all whites as Amabunu, only the Boers. That was because the Boers' skin color was tanned, even a tad yellowish perhaps because of their part Khoi ancestry by now. The British, on the other hand, were pale pink, often sunburned. Yes, skin color is quite a miracle, really. Just when you get used to white and black, along comes pink and brown. Mustard and fawn, or indeed caramel, almond, hazelnut, toffee, java, espresso, ebony, or even deep ebony, or pale, fair, medium beige, and olive. A veritable cacophony of keratin, ripples of history that show up in the sunshine here in southern Africa. Petrus Aka Pites was one of the fair-haired Dutch folks who was also upbeat and a bit of a type-A personality. People naturally liked him as he popped up at the Grahamstown and Newtonhag horse races. The British thought highly of him, so did the Boers. He was extremely fit, a very good horseman. Portgita, on the other hand, was dark-skinned, almost two meters tall, bit of a giant, black hair and grizzled beard, a crack shot, and another expert horseman. He was deeply religious, 
always wearing his dark blue corduroy jackets and trousers, and his countenance was severe. He was called O Blobach, Old Blue Mountain, on account of being so tall, and always dressed in a manner that became known as Doppers. More about them as we go along. Portkeeter's other odd characteristic was his straw hat with a green lining that he almost never took off. His dark skin and hair was offset by startlingly blue eyes, which would soften when children were around. He was feared by adults, but children were spoiled by this giant, and like Ace, he was bitten by wanderlust, and the interior beckoned. These two men, who looked so different but were motivated by similar philosophies, approached the British authorities once more and asked for permission to allow three separate hunting parties to head north. They were granted permission, and the first Boer party of 20 men and one woman left for Natal on the 8th of September 1834. They were joined by at least two dozen Khoi servants and assistants. This was just before the Sixth Frontier War had begun, but there was going to be a link, as you'll hear. Not only were the Boers selling ammunition to the Amatkosa, they were providing them with intelligence at this stage. It's a bit like these days. The political class doesn't seem to understand what's going on amongst the diverse citizenship of South Africa. So this party of 20 headed out in 14 wagons and called in at Trichard's farm near the Indwe River, sitting amongst the flickering flames, as author Robin Binks describes, discussing the news of the day. Then they continued through Hintz's land, who was to come to a sticky end within a year, as you'll hear. When Hintze heard that the Boers were looking for land, an ace pressed Hintze that Tlosa region suggested they focus on territory between the Tsomo River and Umzumvubu. That is verdant and rolling countryside, perfectly suited to livestock and agriculture. Pondo chief Faku met them. He was friendly, and he gave them land on the east side of the Umzumvubu River, all the way up to the Umkamanzi River, otherwise known as the Vatarafir. Faku was worried about Dingan and wanted the Boers to be a kind of buffer zone. The Zulu were a constant threat, even though the raids had not worked out for that well-known person called Shaka. How was the land you passed through? asked Faku. It looked lovely, admitted Ace. The Boers continued on their way. They weren't ready to stop just yet, heading up the east coast following Andrew Smith's route. You'll remember Smith's descriptions and when the small party under Ace saw Natal, they weren't disappointed. Rich grasslands rolled from horizon to horizon, wildlife wandered about in the thousands. It was a veritable land of milk and honey. Only heaven itself could be more beautiful than these lovely lands, Ace said to his companions. It took them some time to reach Port Natal, arriving in February 1835, more than two months after the Sixth Frontier War had broken out. Waiting for them was British agent Alan Gardiner, who Ace sat with one night and said he wanted to colonize Natal on behalf of the Boers. Both discussed the importance of increasing the number of settlers as the traders were living in fear, surrounded by Dingan's warriors and his chiefs. Ace set about his favorite pastime, shooting elephants, another game, then set off to visit Dingan. When they reached the Mvoti River, one of the traders who joined them, Richard King, rode ahead to Dingan's Mgunglovi residence near modern Ulundi to ask Dingan for an audience. The Zulu king sent four Indunas and 100 warriors to fetch Ace to escort him to his grand kraal in the Mfolozi River Valley. Ace, however, was sick, lying in his ox wagon, so he sent his 15-year-old brother, Johannes, to meet the king. But they were delayed by the Tugela River, which was in full flood, so Dingan sent more Indunas to the Tugela to hear what the boy had to say. He was asking for land between the Tugela and the Mzumvubu to the south. 
After messages were sent back and forth, Dingaan agreed, but this was to become the source of much debate later, as I'm going to explain. One person's permission is another person's tribute. We'll see what happened. By now, Johannes was being kept by the Ndunas as a hostage, and the young boy was terrified, begging to be allowed to go home. Dingaan's plan was to keep him at Ngunguglovu, but changed his mind and felt sorry for the youngster. He was also aware he didn't want to create more enemies out of the white travellers. The Ndunas released Johannes, and back at Ace's camp, Pete gave the Ndunas some gifts as thanks, including a horse. He also renamed his brother Yanni Hostage as a form of twisted sibling joke. With that, the Ace family turned for home, their heavily laden wagons creaking with ivory and hides to sell back in the Cape. They visited Hinsa on the way back, and there learned about the start of the Sixth Frontier War, and were shocked. Here were these Boers trundling along in the felt, blissfully unaware that over the past four months, settlers and the Matkosa had been fighting tooth and nail. It's important because Hinsa differentiated between people, the British and the Boers. These were complex times, and he organized a protection unit of 100 warriors to escort Ace back to Grahamstown, even in the midst of the violence you've heard about so far. It was in March 1835 that Ace arrived back in Grahamstown and met Governor de Urban and promised he would never leave the Cape, despite the beauty and wonder of Natal. He was lying through his teeth, of course. And in another twist, he'd been helped by Hinsa, who did not have long to live. We'll hear more about Portita Ace and the Trichards in an upcoming episode. It's time to jump back a few weeks to February 1835. Colonel Harry Smith was now certain he defeated the Tlaza in the Fish River ravines and convinced his boss, Governor Durbin, that they should launch an attack on the Tlaza country itself across the Kaiskama River. Smith believed that his enemy had lost about 100 warriors, a pitifully small number compared to the more than 10,000 facing the British, the Khoi, the settlers and the Boer troops. No one had actually witnessed any strategic defeat he was deploying a well-known military intelligence technique known as optimistic thumbsuck. The Kosa had lost their cattle, but at the end of February they erupted out of the Kai River ravines, attacking a force of Boers allied to the British, almost overwhelming them. De Urban froze all plans to invade across the Kaiskama and ordered Smith to head back to the bush to defeat these men. This was the first proper guerrilla war fought by the British in the 19th century, and it caused the disillusionment. The Tlaza were dexterous in the bush, the British leaden-footed. The Fish River in 1835 was the British Army's induction into an extended form of guerrilla war against a foe who understood how to fight on the land. In the previous frontier war, the British had hired the Khoian Boers to fight inside Thorny Bush, but now they had to go in themselves, along with the English settlers. It was like fighting inside a dark tunnel. The Tlaza stubbornly refused to expose themselves, dictating the outcome of each battle like the Boers were to do much later in the two Boer Wars. Irony drips from Southern African history like a fierce wax. The challenge at first was not taken up by Sir Benjamin de Urban, steeped in the military system installed by the Duke of Wellington. If it worked against Napoleon, he thought, it should work against these lowly savages. Well, that was wrong. It was mid-March 1835, when de Urban and Smith once again believed they'd cleared the Kai River, the second such conclusion they'd drawn in two months that would be equally inaccurate. They shifted their actions to the Amatola Mountains, and there was more bad news. 
The bush in parts of these stunning hills and mountains was even thicker than the riverine thickets. Charlie and Matkoma's forces were gathered inside these fastnesses that cause a living in homesteads scattered through the bush, broken up, hard to find. Durban wanted to make sure that he was going to overcome these warriors, so he planned a full-scale invasion. He'd beat the Tkosa out of the Amatolas like animals, he thought, and they'd scatter to the east. Then he'd ambush these men and deal with them. Harry Smith set up his base camp in Fort Wilshire, and the commandos began gathering there, skirmishing with nearby Tkosa warriors based on the lower peaks and slopes of the Amatolas. Wana Smith, his young wife, was back in Cape Town, and the colonel was writing his love letters regularly. You gallop in, and half by force, half by stratagem, pounce upon them wherever you can find them, frighten their wives, burn their homes, lift their cattle, and return home quite triumphant, he gloated. The cause of warriors, however, inside the bush were unbowed, whatever Smith was writing to his beloved. Durban was still wallowing in Gramstown like an aging, overcautious hippo. Charlie's men watched Smith's men, who watched Charlie's men. The British fires at the foot, monitored by the Tkosa, sitting at their fires on the mountains, and the British watching these fires. Waiting with Smith was settler Holden Bowker, who wrote, Colonel Smith went up the Amatola hills and looked down into the enemy's strongholds and smelt the smoke of the enemy's fires. There were two of the three missionaries still operating amongst the Tkosa, but even these eventually fled. John Brownlee, who was safe at his mission station on the Buffalo River alongside Yanni Chachu's Tinde people, found that they had turned against him. Chachu himself came to Brownlee one night and said that Tinde were going to war against the British and asked the missionary to join him. Brownlee said he could not. Other missionaries heard about this in Grahamstown and sent wagons to get him out. He refused. He and his family were going to pay for this stubbornness. All his servants fled but three that night, and a little later the silence was shattered by the whistles of the Tkosa, who took all his animals first. Then the three coy servants ran off. There was shouting. The warriors began breaking down his front door, and Brownlee placed his Bible on the table in front of him and began reading the 46th Psalm. The door crashed to the ground. Brownlee and his wife and sons fell to their knees, and he said, Let us pray, as the Tkosa could be heard in the kitchen. Then broke into their main room. Despite preparing to go quietly, something appeared to snap in our friend Mr. Brownlee, and he lurched to his feet, and that was some sight because he was over six foot tall. He forgot about Christian forbearance and humility and flung himself towards the Tkosa warriors, shouting, It was such a shock, they turned around and fled. But this was a short respite. At dawn, a large warrior party gathered outside, and Brownlee opened the door and walked towards them. The chief leading the group demanded he hand over an elderly trader who was sheltering somewhere in the mission. We want him, said the chief. We have nothing to do with you. You are a missionary. Brownlee stood before this man and said, You shall not harm him except you first take my life. The chief looked at him then ordered the warriors to move off. But almost immediately afterwards, an even larger group of warriors appeared led by another chief. Brownlee's wife knew him and said, Well, Nyani, it has come to this. You are come to do violence to your teacher. Is this good? Yanni said nothing, but an old woman alongside, a sorceress, shouted, Cowards! Are you frightened by the words of a woman? Follow me! They began to loot the mission station, ignoring the missionaries and their children. But Brownlee realized time was up. His wife and eight children left the station that night, along with the elderly trader and his infirm wife. 
setting off on a 50-kilometre walk to Wesleyville, the Wesleyan mission station near Patu, and his supposedly neutral Kunukwebe people. Walking with them was a remarkable animal, the family's Newfoundland dog, which appeared to understand the gravity of the situation. It ran around continuously, checking ahead and behind, sniffing and listening, sometimes standing on its hind legs, and remained quiet when they passed Amatoza warriors or homesteads. Another missionary who changed his mind about his safety was Wesleyan John Aliff, whose mission station called Butterworth was in the Transcar, quite close to Hintz's great place. Aliff was in much deeper trouble than the Brownleys because he was intrinsically linked to a group of people whose origin has been debated, but who were really linked to the Nguani of Matawani, the radar you heard about a few podcasts ago. Thousands of these people were living near Hintz's great place after they sought protection from him. These were the Amamfengu, the people whose story will make your jaw drop. It's so extraordinary, even by the standards of our stories here in Southern Africa. More about them next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Dot Seeds. Thank you.